The internet's got more cults than California in the 1970s. What is happening? I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Here to voyage down the rabbit holes is Justin Murphy, a political scientist before leaving academia in 2019 to write and teach on the internet full time. Now he runs The Other Life Company from his home in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me. All right, let's do this. We've got so many cults on the internet, so many young people, uh, especially since COVID, just getting lost in the sauce. Uh, let's run through them. Um, aliens. <laughs> uh, you, you recently had some remarks on this guy, Deep Prasad. He's, uh, he's like an expert in, um, in quantum mechanics, wants to do uh, physics AI. And he had this uh, viral TikTok appearance where he's talking about being paralyzed in his bed, switching between laptop and cell phone, uh, visited by otherworldly beings, spaceship comes down through his house. What is going on? Why are aliens so hot right now? Well, it's very interesting that if you tell someone you had an encounter with an angel or God, you're seen as a loony tune. But if you say pretty much the same thing, but you frame it in terms of techno science, in terms of extraterrestrials, that is seen as this kind of, uh, it's sexy, right? It's, it's more compelling, it's more believable. And yet when you actually look at how people describe these experiences, they're often quite structurally similar. So I think what you're seeing here is something you're seeing in many different domains in the culture, which is just displaced religious fervor, essentially. Yeah, it's like a, a new religion with all the all the benefits, but none of the drawbacks, none of the spiritual discipline. You know, they, they talk about these like uh, angel-like experiences with with the aliens, but you know, the aliens are always like telling them how great everything is. Oh, it's fine. This p feeling of euphoria and total peace, and it is progress, and everything that we want to become because humanity sucks. Well, like we'll be just like them. They never ask anything from people, they never make any spiritual demands on them, they never tell them that it's actually gonna be hard to achieve enlightenment or peace or salvation. Right, so these experiences are never explicitly labeled. They're always open to interpretation. So what really is the difference between seeing an angel or seeing God and seeing an alien? We don't know in advance. And so it's going to be shaped by what you tend to believe is true. So if, we have a society where we say that aliens are a more likely phenomenon, where we see things laden with techno-scientific trappings as more convincing, higher status, higher prestige, then it's quite possible that the same exact phenomenon that people through millennia have been experiencing when it comes to things like you know, miracles and visitations could very well be happening today. It's just being incorrectly labeled because these things don't come with a label. Well, it's also fascinating that, you know, what you don't hear is like, I was visited by demons. It really freaked me out. Like, danger, danger. Maybe we should rethink what we're doing here. That's right as well. That's, that's equally plausible, but no one ever seems to take that guess. And if you think about it, there's always going to be, there should be some error rate. There should be, right, because there, some people should make mistakes about what they're seeing just because we as humans make mistakes about what we see. But notice that the error, there's a zero error rate. And whenever the error rate is zero, you know there's something fishy going on. It's like that finding of uh, when, the, when people pick someone out of a lineup. If, if every single person you ask 
po points to the same suspect in the lineup as the one who did it, then you know it's due to bias. You know that it's not actually accurate because if it were accurate, there would be some non-zero error. Does it freak you out seeing online culture go from uh, the feds can't be trusted, I want to believe, to like, well, wait a minute, no, like the feds are actually right, like there are aliens, like we have to trust the science? Yeah, there's some really interesting thing going on there that has to do, I think, with just sort of status and contrarianism. We're now in this weird place where the contrarian thing is the high status thing. And so what's, what's seen as legitimate, plausible, attractive, desirable, cool, is like uh, oscillating more rapidly and more wildly than it used to. I, I, I think there's something like that going on and, and that helps to explain why there's been this pretty massive flip-flop over a relatively short period of time where in our lifetimes we can remember not too long ago where if you believed in aliens, you were a crazy person. Now it's pretty much widely believed by, or at least it's, it's a high status view. If you talk to an average kind of educated hip person with an internet following or whatever, uh, most of them are like, yeah, of course there's aliens. It's cool to think that it's, it's respectable and, and impressive to think that. And so, yeah, I think one element here is that this is just accelerationism. The, the speed with which these, these things can change status, you know, valence is increasing. So there's more flip-flopping of this kind of thing over shorter periods of time. And there's also this kind of obsession with innovation, being unique, being individual, and being contrarian. And so as soon as something's uh, too popular, people have to choose the other thing, but then everyone flocks into it. And so I think you're, you're, we're going to look back on this contemporary moment of history as one of incredibly wild and ridiculous changes in, in public opinion in terms of like what is real, what is true, what is good. And I think that's what we're living through. You're a well-educated guy with a cool internet following. What do you believe? I believe God is real. I believe God is real. I don't know exactly what it means. I think you could spend a whole lifetime trying to figure out what that means, but I do believe God is real. And I think when you look at a lot of the extremely enthusiastic social formations that you see today, you find this kind of uh, fervor, this, this kind of will to believe, this bias in favor of believing which is frankly impossible to understand as anything other than essentially the, the, the religious feeling. And the more I see that, the more I kind of realize that, although it's still somewhat low status to say that one believes in God, this is still you know, something you generally don't say in, in elite kind of prestigious public culture, unless you're a politician and you're, you know, you're, you're banging a drum for some kind of base that, that you're trying to get to vote for you. It seems increasingly hard to deny that there are deep structures of feeling and that there is a deep uh, logic to natural law. It's not, it's not a mystical thing. It's not necessarily a supernatural thing, although there are perhaps elements of that. And, saying, and, and by yeah. natural law, you mean what? Just so we're on the same page. Meaning, meaning, meaning that there are right and wrong ways of thinking and right and wrong ways of behaving. And when you obey the correct ways of thinking and the correct ways of, of living, generally good things happen. And when you disobey them, generally bad things happen. That there is this kind of um, underlying structure in order to, to human attitudes and to uh, human behaviors where you can say there's a natural right and wrong. And you, to, to acknowledge that is essentially itself to acknowledge that there is some sort of larger structure that is obscure to us. And yeah, I think you can either bite the bullet and say that and believe it and follow it to its conclusions and spend your life essentially trying to figure out what it means, 
which is perhaps obscure. Or you can say, oh, that's a bunch of religious baloney and you can't prove that with science and I'm going to go live how I want to. But then as soon as you try to do anything with any amount of, of intensity or enthusiasm, you pretty much find yourself in some kind of cult that's, that's ridiculous and absurd and, and unfounded. How much do you blame just technology itself that we've got so many people nowadays who are either just like working in tech constantly, consuming it, just floating in the technological environment that it just comes down to like if you spend that much time sort of interfacing with the, these technologies, you are just going to be led through the sort of patterns of thinking uh, into believing that aliens are out there and they're here and they're coming down and we should look to them and admire them and, and try to become them ultimately. Yeah, I think that might be right. Well, you have to always keep in mind that at any given time and place, almost all people are just aping into whatever is cool and, and seen as good, right? So I think the, the alien fad is, is mostly that. I, I wouldn't make it uh, anything other than that. But there is a, you're right, there's a weird sort of identification with the aliens. And again, w does that not map on perfectly to essentially the, the, the religious structure of feeling, which is a kind of um, identification of, of the highest possible good, of the best possible creatures of, or creature. Um, th there, is a, there is a need to know what is at the apex of human values and of human behaviors. Uh, there, is a, there is a need to imagine uh, something beyond and something higher. And I'm not saying that, that God is imagined. I'm saying that our sort of inevitable tendency to long for that and to imagine that is itself just a kind of indirect piece of evidence uh, for, for the likelihood of something like that uh, really existing. And so, yeah, I, I think you can't get around it. And we're at this moment in culture now where the polite, diplomatic, academic thing that people have generally done, which is, is, is that you don't talk about God, you don't talk about religion. We've had, arguably since Descartes, we've had this kind of bargain where in the public sphere, we do science, we do reason, and we meet in the, in, the, in, the, in the modern civic center, putting aside uh, religious claims that, that are not you know, verifiable. We, we agree informally to meet in the public square and talk about only that which, which is rationally um, you know, amenable to, to intersubjective you know, analysis and confirmation. But that ship has kind of sailed because we're now living in this culture where the public culture now has many different competitors that are essentially leveraging uh, extreme religious fervor in, in different ways. And so if you actually want to participate in the public sphere today, you actually do need to uh, come to terms with what you do believe on that deeper level. And you need to kind of say it uh, and, 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 and sort of defect on the Cartesian bargain. So, so that implies many different gods, like a return to paganism. I mean, who was it who said uh, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him? It seems like, you know, for people who have convinced themselves that God does not exist when they've killed God, very next thing they do is start like, well, we must build one. And this is now like an active project. Oh, no, this is good. We're going to build a new God and it's going to replace everything that came before. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I think that's right. I think that's right. All right. I mean, it's that easy, folks. It's that easy to be right. Um, I want to I want to pivot from aliens to the cult of smarts, because this is kind of like why, like my account mm -hmm. of why. And, yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not a reporter and, and I do have some sources uh, that I just like pick up from from uh, just hanging out in the group chats. Probably a little too long, uh, but you do you do observe some things. And uh, there's there seems to be. Um, a, a pretty firm conviction among uh, my sources 
that uh, that the alien thing is definitely being pushed, uh, that it is coming sort of from the top down, whether it's an op or not, you know, they're, they're not really, really willing to say, um, but there is this push, uh, and it does seem to be the kind of thing that is just like, if you were going to run an op on a society that is like over-educated, over-saturated, over-information, uh, and, and ultimately thinks that intelligence is kind of the highest and most powerful of our faculties, then that's the kind of op that you're gonna run. So let's talk about uh, the smarts. Um, there was a tech conference, one of zillions uh, recently, um, some kind of summit, and uh, I couldn't help but notice uh, that uh, one of the organizers said our key metric was insights per minute, as if to suggest that if we had like, you know, a billion insights per minute, that would be even better. And you just kind of like this orgasmic feeling of achieving a singularity of information. Why is it that everyone is so obsessed with raw intelligence? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one possible answer is that it has been taboo for a while to talk about raw intelligence. And so people who understand human behavior understand that it is one of the best predictors of most outcomes in life. And so because it's sort of suppressed and it's sort of taboo to talk about that in many, in many sort of prestige academic circles, in the humanities especially, it's sort of, it's sort of then overplayed. It's sort of, sort of over leaned into as the, as the, the secret solution to everything. The, the, you know, that's one possible answer in, in certain circles. But I think the other fact of the matter is, I think you know this as well as I do, that in an accelerating capitalist economy, it is kind of this very brutal grinding process where only intelligence survives in, in, in some ways, at least that's how it looks like in an earthly sense. Th that which is selected is increasingly that which is most, most brutally and exclusively intelligent. So I don't know that people are thinking that ex explicitly, but I do think that that is, is one of the, 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 the factors in the background. It, we do live in an increasingly brutal selection process where intelligence is essentially what is being selected by markets, by, by institutions that are conditioned by the market. So I think that explains the anxiety and the obsession with intelligence. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, conservatives and, and people on the right who are more likely to be kind of like, well, maybe Marx had some good points, right? And there are some of these folks. And one of the things they like to fixate on, or at least <clears throat> emphasize, um, is Marx's idea that like un under capitalism, all that is solid melts into air. And so what could be like more of like, <coughs> more airy and more susceptible to just turning into a market force than, than intelligence? Like this is kind of the most protean shape-shifting faculty that we have. Yeah, I think there's truth to that. There's also just selection. A lot of people talk about selection in the public sphere and media, selection for the stupid and the populist and oh yeah, ideas only sell nowadays if they're stupid and geared towards the idiots. Th that's one very kind of common meme. But we forget also that it actually works in the other way as well, in that intelligence, as I said before, is, is brutally selected for. So among the kind of high status crews, among people who you know, think of themselves as the opinion makers or whatever, and often do have a lot of control over, over you know, the, the spread of opinion, there it, the, the fact is intelligence is sort of naturally biased and it, there's a natural bias in favor of it, right? So I think that also has something to do with it. Intelligent people are the ones who rise to the top and guess what they're interested in talking about. Guess what they're interested in valorizing, in other words. Intelligence. 
Yeah, I'm at the top. I must be the most interesting thing there is. Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating to me is uh, I was talking about um, Christianity, as I do, with various friends and colleagues the other day. Um, and we were talking about the disciples. And, you know, these are guys who were not imbeciles. They were not super geniuses either. They're like somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you spend a lot of time online, you've probably seen the, the bell curve meme like many times. And bell curve meme gives you like this sort of drooling hipster at the top of the bell curve who's like the midwit. And this is like the, the scapegoat enemy, you know, laughing stock character uh, who says like, no, you guys, and has like some long explanation of something. Uh, and then at one end of the bell curve, you have... Uh, the the imbecile, uh, the village idiot, you know, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it's increasingly on the internet, like, retarded is becoming less of a slur because it's, like, good actually, like, tarred strength. And the idea is if you're super simple-minded, then you have common sense folk wisdom. And the common sense folk wisdom is presented as having a lot more in common with, like, the super genius who's at the other end right. and has achieved enlightenment and can sum up sort of like comes all the way back around to common sense and has this like pithy one-liner. And so the brilliant and the, the imbecile are right and the midwit is wrong. But if you look at, you know, what, what Jesus's thoughts on this, this situation, he actually did think that like the midwits were the best ones to, to create disciples out of. And so like, I, I am wondering if the midwits are going to have a renaissance and if the cult of intelligence is really going to be uh, humiliated and shamed by, by the resurgence of the midwits. Hmm. Fascinating thesis. Never really thought about that. It is funny though, isn't it? That the disciples are kind of <laughs> these yeah, blokes who it's like their one job was to follow Jesus. And in the final analysis, they kind of all give up on him in the end. <laughs> at the, at, in the final scene, they sort of all are kind of like, uh, we don't know what to do. We're they more or less kind of uh, implicitly assent to his uh, crucifixion. Yeah, well, he told them a couple yeah, of times right. and they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll see about that. And then the moment comes and they're Ugh. right. And it's like, Dudes, you had one job. <laughs> you, had, you, had one, you had one job. Could you not have just kept your eyes on the prize? And I, I think it does, it does actually say a lot. And, it, and, and I think you're right to, to sense that there, there's deeper meaning there. One thing I'll say is that the simpleton has a lot of advantages going for him. And a lot of what you're seeing today is people falling over themselves to be the most intelligent, to be the most impressive, to be the most prestigious. And a lot of those people, if you actually look under the hood of their lives, are kind of going off of their own cliffs, like, like lemmings. Uh, just like people who are, you know, less intelligent or poor or, you know, downtrodden in other ways, which may or may not be their fault. Those people often are, are going off the different cliffs in, in tragic ways. There does seem to be a kind of winning strategy that pertains to the, the simpleton, who it's the straight and narrow path, right? It's not particularly intelligent. It's not particularly impressive. It's not based on some contrarian lifestyle philosophy and uh, systematic morning routine that you like learn on YouTube or whatever. It's actually incredibly simple. It's like, don't have a child out of wedlock, um, get married and don't cheat on them or leave them, work hard every day, don't lie and do anything obviously bad and just try to do your best to bring value into the world. If you kind of do all of those things, you're actually statistically quite likely to do pretty well for yourself in America. You're extremely unlikely to be poor. You're extremely unlikely to fall into, you know, the most tragic, well-known life traps that, that we see. Whereas you read these, you know, memoirs of 
female journalists who work for the Atlantic or whatever. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 45, I'm single, I don't have kids, I just got married, but I left him because I wanted to be free to, you know, enjoy more personal coffee time in Brooklyn, I don't know. And, and it's like this grand saga that's supposed to be seen as like really important and, and novelistic, like artistic and, and deep and significant. But most of the people nowadays look at that and, you're kind of, and it's increasingly clear that that person is as confused and sad and, and frankly failing just as much as a kind of poor fentanyl addict on the streets of, of San Francisco. That's really what it looks to me. It's like there's high status ways to totally go off the cliff and there's low status ways to go, completely go off the cliff. And it seems like in our accelerating capitalist culture, both of those surface areas are increasing and both of them are dangerous and kind of sucking people into them. And really the, the best way to stay out of all of them is this really, really simple, unimpressive, straight and narrow path. I think that is absolutely right. And you know, it's a tragedy to see how women have been I mean, I get it, you know, I get it in when it's high modernity and you're like, man, we need to have jobs too. And like, why, well, you know, I need to be more successful than my dad and my dad sucked and it's just in the factory. And like, I understand that. But then you have all these women who are working jobs that are actually worse than their father's jobs and they're more miserable and they're sold on like eat, pray, love, but eat, pray, love turns out to be like eat, uh, like spa and like love eating and going to the spa and that can only get you so far. Like when you are in a culture that is so fanatically dedicated to commodification and to the like ringing of economic value out of all things and the turning of all things into commodities and into sources of economic value, uh, the, I mean, you can just hear the screeching of people saying like, no, you can't take the straight and narrow path. You can't do the simple thing. You can't just lead the obviously good life because we can't market that. We can't turn that into a product and we can't suck the spiritual vitality out of that life form and sort of sell it off for parts. It's very bad for content. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's incredibly hard to get content out of this lifestyle. And I can tell you from, from firsthand experience. Yeah, so you know, in a way, like what you're telling me is that intelligence and smarts are so worshiped and there's such a cult around them because you know, at the end of the day, they're just better at spitting out more content and coming out with more excuses to create more content than anything else. They're very good at spinning off content. They're very aspirational. There's many superficial trappings associated with them that are very desirable and coveted, but no one's telling the stories about how frequently these life paths turn out in, into absolute disaster, often really sad. And to be clear, I'm not being glib about it. I, I have a lot of sympathy. There, there are a lot of people who've spent their entire life climbing certain ladders to have success in some institutional hierarchy, and a large number of them are finding themselves incredibly sad and confused and and, and increasingly in self-destructive ways, which it's frankly, it's surprising to me how transparent the, the culture is about it. If you look closely, you can find many of them. I've, I've been obsessed with this particular genre I alluded to before of the, the professional woman whose life falls apart rather horribly and tragically. And, and their, their last gasping breath to try to save themselves and turn value out of it is to tell the whole story in this pseudo proud way as if, as if they're going to own it, right? And they're, and they're, they're going to make art out of it. And, and, and I wish them the best. And hopefully they can do that. Actually, that's as noble a way to try to, you know, make something good out of your life as, as any. But everyone else gets to read these stories. You can actually go look, you can see this stuff more and more uh, visibly. You, and if you look under the hood and you pay attention, it's sort of like, oh, wow. Even in the high status life pathways, there are more and more dangers and more and more failure modes that are uh, increasingly common, it seems to me.
Yeah. Well, I think we've beaten up on the late stage women enough. Maybe we can pivot to beating up on the late stage men. Uh, you know, intelligence, um, it's not just like a content factory, although it certainly is that. Um, but, uh, you know, you know this as well as anyone, sort of the the very online philosopher who I turn to to discuss these matters. Hmm. Um, it's also a weapons factory. I mean, you look at the way that technology has, has advanced uh, over the past 50 or 60 years, um, and you can just go right back to the Manhattan Project, this moment when uh, the number one driver, and in fact, the number one justification of, of research and development, of technological advancement, of innovation, of like, thinking about what to innovate, choosing the research agenda for technology, it didn't come out of the market. It came out of the state. It came out of this mm. government within the government, the secret government doing the Manhattan Project. And once that, uh, once that precedent was set, it stuck, man. And it was all about creating more and more powerful weapons, bending technology and the whole, what are we thinking about this thing for in that direction? Yeah, there was the Cold War. I mean, it's, it's in hindsight, it's, you know, it's very rational. It's all too rational to see that that's how things unfolded. Uh, but even when you get into, you know, Pixar and Apple and, and George Lucas, Industrial Light and Magic, the Imagineering, uh, Willy Wonka, Pure Imagination, you know, all these things look like they were just, it's just creative visionaries, just sitting down one day and thinking like, how can I make the world cooler? And how can I bring people together with ideas? Well, a lot of this stuff was just repurposed weaponry. Mm -hmm. You look at, you know, all of the communications uh, uh, technologies that go into the, into the iPhone, GPS, touchscreen, uh, you know, geo asynchronous communications, uh, all this stuff was military stuff. Even cable television was basically just kind of repurposed uh, uh, DARPA or DOD work. Um, weapons are still so hot right now. You look at what's going on with Ukraine. You look at the way that so much of what Silicon Valley is doing is either actively cooperating with the deep state, driving the deep state, um, or, you know, yeah, you have some guys who are like, no, I'm not going to go work for Google. I'm going to create my own autonomous weapons company, and then I'm going to get those sweet government contracts. Um, wh where does this end? Is, is this kind of cult, like the cult of weaponry, something that is going to lead us into, uh, I mean, I think of Donald Trump is one tweet, I just wanted to stop the world from killing itself. Is that where this is going? To know where it ends, it would help to know where it began. And I think... An interesting note that, that's similar to what you're saying is you see this even in culture and how people speak and how people think. In a way, we've weaponized our own verbal capacities. This is one reason why politics is sort of dominates public culture. If you go on Twitter or whatever, any kind of open public sphere, uh, a lot of the energy, uh, even among smart people, is essentially political. You look at some of the biggest Substack authors or whatever, a lot of them are political. And it's, it's very clear that our culture on many different indicators has become uh, extremely politicized, even uh, domains of life that, that historically never needed to be. So I would argue that this weaponization you're talking about actually comes down even to people's souls nowadays in a way that is completely obscure and, and implicit and not recognized as, as weird at all. It's actually rec it's seen as normal now. And I think the reason for that is that broadly, historically, you can make the argument that there's really two different ways to use language. And it's really the, 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 the Christian moment that opens up a, a, a radically different kind of way of relating to language and of speaking than that which is uh, kind of the default animalistic tendency of human beings. And so 
you know, I've, I've actually been quite infatuated with Augustine lately. And, you know, Augustine has this notion of that there's two cities. There's the city of God and then there's the, the city of man uh, or the earthly city. And it's a very fascinating book because he basically, the way I read him is that these are basically two attractors. You, you can, you, we're always moving and you're only going to be able to move over time towards one. You're always constantly falling into one or the other. And you can't just be chill and normal and average and I'm going to not really choose one. I'm just going to be myself and not go in a good direction or a bad direction. You're always being sucked into one of these two strange attractors. And uh, the reason I go into this long backstory is because speech is essentially the the way that you move from, from one to the other. Uh, so, you know, the typical default way of thinking and talking in today's society is essentially this violent one. It's a combative one. It's assuming that everything is a zero-sum game. And we, usually, we really use words just to kind of get more resources for ourselves. That's essentially the kind of pre-Christian, animalistic, uh, violent way of of what it means to use your mind and to use words. I think even even the Greeks were uh, susceptible to this. You see this today even in you know, uh, different forms of Straussianism. I would argue that pretty much all popular thought today, even in, in more elite, sophisticated uh, cultures, even in some Christian ones, is sort of uh, completely trapped in this sort of uh, Machiavellian instrumental rationality. And it's a completely different way of thinking and speaking than, than that which is uh, most radically marked by the, the Christ phenomenon, which is denoted you know, in, in, in the Greek term of, of parisia. Um, which is frank speech. It's kind of recklessly explosive, reckless, explosive honesty. So you can either be engaged in uncalculating, reckless, explosive honesty, and you're moving towards the city of God, or you can be rational, instrumentally rational with your speech, which is you're essentially just thinking about how to get resources and how to get one over on, on, on your fellow man. Um, and we do not fully appreciate how much we are completely trapped in the latter. And that, that pretty much is pulling everyone constantly into this kind of vortex of, of the city of man, which is, you know, pretty much going down the tubes over time. That's well, my, my larger meta. meta yeah, no, no, meta this, this, is, this is good. So, like, one of the things I like to focus on, um, try not to be obsessive about it because it can eat everything, but just, like, the, the hidden costs uh-huh. of COVID, of lockdowns, uh-huh. of the oh, okay. fallout from that. I mean, it's, it's messed with people's sense of time. Mm. It's messed with their sense of, like, you know, coming of age mm. and generations and how that works. So many things. Um, but I th- you had a tweet on on this very thing not not that long ago, and it was basically uh, if I mangle this, just just correct me uh, that that COVID did to our our knowledge, to our sense of of what mm. what a knowable thing is, uh, what World War II did to our physics, which is this was like a crisis, uh, a global crisis that rewarded people for inventing new kinds of weapons. Weapons that could be used, you know, potentially uh, 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 against the entire mm-hmm. world at, at any time. Um, maybe you can just like, you know, connect the dots a little bit on how it is, like, w- in in what way life has become weaponized because of COVID, and how that relates to the spiritual war that you're describing. Right. So COVID was uh, a really amazing radicalization of the larger historical phenomenon that I was just describing. It it showed uh, to 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 how deep a degree all public messaging is essentially strategic messaging. It's sort of laid bare uh, to to a really extraordinary degree in real time in ways that forced people to reckon with it. That's what's what's most interesting about COVID as a kind of public speech event or moment in the history of public speech. Of course, there's always been strategic messaging by politicians and people are pretty hip to it nowadays. We all know politicians are often, you know, uh, faking it or using words very strategically for political purposes. That's obvious, that's not profound. 
Um, but most of the time, the average person can just ignore it and go on with their own life. What was, what was remarkable about COVID is it forced everyone to make th these really scary, uh, viscerally significant decisions. Will you put the needle in your body or not? It just completely changes the, the visceral psychological gravity of it all. And, and everyone had to choose yes or no to, you know, to these like very visceral and often quite scary. Um, at least at one point in time, many people thought the stakes could be you know, life or death. Uh, will you put the needle in you? And it's a life or death decision. It completely changes the psychological experience for everyone. Um, and at the same time, you see all the flip-flopping. You see, uh, you, you, it's pretty much obvious in the lived experience just watching the news. You don't have to do research. You don't have to go read a book that exposes the, the real story. Like everyone has gone through this experience where the public health officials are saying one thing one day, then they change it the next week. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, average bloke can see, oh, they're just, they're just saying these words because they're trying to optimize for some external criterion that is obscure to me, but that they're trying to optimize for. So I'm the object in, in this game. And so the reason that's important is because it uh, shows that to make it, if you're, if you're going to make it with you and your family or the people you care about or, or love, you now are forced to kind of grapple with, with weaponized words. And you're starting to think, oh, maybe I need to weaponize my words too just to survive. How are me and my people and my family and my community going to uh, you know, uh, communicate in, in the public discourse? There's just this uh, increased gravity. The, the, the stakes have, have, have risen. And it's really kind of laid bare how much all of public discourse is this um, essentially instrumental rationality that where, where words are being used as, 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 as fake. That's what I meant by, by, by weapon systems. Um, everyone's more sophisticated now. Everyone's going to kind of, you know, the offensive use of words in an instrumentally rational way is going to become more sophisticated, but then also the defensive structures of decoding them and, and questioning them are also becoming more sophisticated. So the people who rejected the vaccines um, for, for, for their own reasoning, um, they're essentially increasing their investment in sort of defensive weapon systems, right? So everyone is just becoming more and more weaponized, whether it's offensive or defensive. And that, that's what I thought was interesting about it. So we're all propagandists now, but we're also all trying to like stop the other guy's propaganda from, from penetrating our lives. Not just that, but you have to. You increasingly have to. It's uh, a lot of work. It's yeah. a lot of uh, uncompensated emotional labor as our, uh, as our commie friends who live in Brooklyn. Like yeah, to say. it sucks. But here's the, here's the cool thing. You actually don't have to. And this goes back to the, to the simpleton yeah. uh, strategy. You actually don't have to. And, th and that's the radical Christian philosophy that, that people still don't fully understand, is that you can choose to not weaponize your words whatsoever. You can just choose to do that. But what if I end up being a martyr? It's okay. Right. <laughs> it's okay. Right. It's, it's, everything is news. just okay. Everything is just okay. It's the most, it's the most simplistic and kind of annoyingly uh, trivial, naive uh, philosophy ever. But as far as I can tell, it's actually the correct one. And it's amazing that it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the most powerful cults going on right now is this. I mean, and look, like I like vitality. I like spiritual, physical. You know, it's good to be sort of like able to s remain standing when there's a strong breeze. Uh, but man, like some of these some of these guys, these very online guys are like Hellenism. Go back to Sparta. I mean, I've got Spartan blood. I get it. But these people, this is like they they look at what you're talking about and they say, no, this is weakness. You're you're going to get wiped out. You're going to be destroyed. You want to be a martyr? Great. I will martyr you. Um, really sour on it. Really sour on Christianity. How do you respond to that? 
a lot of those people are going to go off some cliff that they don't realize they're going off of. It's simply be, not because they're stupid or bad people, but simply because there is ultimately only one straight and narrow path. And it's, it's, it's rooted in reality. It's not an opinion. It's, it's been tested over millennia. And so it's not some claim to revelation or some uh, you know, uh, justification from on high, although there might be those things. Uh, there's actually just a very basic, simple uh, strategic case as well for uh, the, the real existence of this straight and narrow path. And so you can think in one moment that you're smarter than everyone else and you and your mates on Twitter in your DM groups are gonna like decode all the public messaging and you're going to triangulate on the actually true reality that is embedded in the, the you know, the uh, messages of QAnon or perhaps even just in the, between the lines of, of US politicians or whatever. You, and you might even be right one time, right? You, maybe you were right about the vaccines. I won't even say w w what was right or wrong because I, 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 it would be a distraction. Wherever you stand, you might think that you're right. And maybe you were, but will you be the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time? Extremely unlikely. And especially when, you know, in this environment, like you can, you can be right or wrong about something like a thousand times before breakfast to just sort of like rip off Lewis Carroll or whatever, you know, that's, that's the reality. You can make it through the first half of your day, like managing to just like keep up with the blinding pace of the information wars. And, and by lunch, you're like exhausted. And this is, this is how people are living. Yeah. One other point on, on, on your question a moment ago about this very popular new culture where people log onto Twitter, they have some sort of anime profile or a statue, you know, profile pic, and they think that they're sort of decoding everything and that they and their mates are sort of the, the real truth seekers and, and that they have the, the correct model of reality. The, the problem with that, or one of the problems with that, is that it's not Lindy, as to use some of their language, right? So a lot of these people will like, you know, talk about tradition and traditionalism, and we have to go back to our, as you said, our, our Spartan, our Spartan roots, and so they kind of traffic in this, in this kind of Lindyism, <laughs> uh, to to use a strange word, and yet there's nothing Lindy at all about getting your epistemology from Twitter hive minds. Right? Basically, like, basically the <laughs> idea that its value is going to sustain, if not increase over time. Ah, uh, yes. Indefinitely. Or when also just the, the longer that something has been around, uh, the more likely it is to have some sort of um, survival advantage. Right. Almost by definition, right? Uh, and so people can, you know, laugh at Christianity. People can laugh at actually traditional belief systems, but they... From a scientific perspective, they actually have a longer history of success than whatever, than, than like Ray Pete or like whatever. No, no disrespect to Ray Pete, who might be very right about certain things. But, it, but that does not make a, a generalized epistemology that is going to reliably help you kind of uh, navigate your life and given any new uh, context. On this propaganda thing, I mean, one of the biggest recent events that put it all into perspective for me, I don't know if you saw recently... Uh, the uh, the the Canadians had um, this you know old very old veteran of uh, of World War II from Ukraine over and gave him this big standing ovation, uh, and it turned out you know he was such an old veteran from from World War II that he was in one of these Nazi battalions or mm. fighting the the Soviets and uh, you know pretty embarrassing not what they'd intended um, took a while for the apologies. 
to come out. Uh, one of the, uh, wisely, one of the critics of this sort of uh, uh, ridiculous um, and sad moment said, you know, this is terrible. It just handed Vladimir Putin this huge propaganda weapon. Uh, as if that was the worst thing about it. And, you know, okay, we, if you want to read things in terms of propaganda, as if everything is propaganda, and whenever someone who's not you gets an advantage for propaganda, that's like a black eye for you and a, mm. a gold star for them. Well, you know, take a minute and recognize that what's really bad about this is what you did to yourself. Mm -hmm. Not what, you know, the advantage in the psych war you might be given to the person who you consider to be your enemy. And breaking down that, that, sense of if it's good for the bad guys then it's uh it's bad for me and going to the level of like well even without thinking about how it impacts the balance of power in the propaganda war did i just do something that reflects poorly on me that calls my sort of spiritual premises into question you know how what is it that led me to a moment where i thought that something was worth a standing ovation and instead it was something that never should have happened very well put. Yeah, the, that harm that you do to yourself, it compounds even more uh, rapidly and more substantially than whatever political effects you think you're having with, with, with that kind of speech. So yeah, I agree. And people, people underestimate that. I think in part because people are so disembodied. I think this is something you, you talk about a lot in, in your book and, and elsewhere. A lot of people feel like they don't live a real life in their body. I mean, it's it's kind of weird to say that, but I or, think or like the 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 crappy version of their life is the one that they live trapped in their body. Yeah, it's like not real. The 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 life in their body is not real. It's kind of there, but it's 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 they literally see it as less significant or less real than whatever kind of points they can kind of clock up with it's, their with it's their like the kludgy solution they they have to use to get on the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, and so. I think in a lot of ways for a certain type of person, the points that they can rack up with their like statue profile pic on Twitter is in some sense, it is more real for them. And, and, and it, it is partially due to the fact of, of, of uh, how kind of desolate their, their own kind of personal life has become. Not everyone. I'm not slamming on everyone who has a statue profile pic. I have a lot of friends who kind of run some of those some accounts, of which my are very best good. Friends are yeah, statue. Some picture. of them are very good. Some of them are very good. But um, there is something I think I think real going on there. And so when when you know you write about the merging with you know the the cyborg machine, uh, and in a way it's not theoretical. It's and it's not some far off event. It's it it happens gradually and it's already happening, and and you see it in the form of of people who treat their own embodied lives as literally less real than, than their internet lives. That's, that's no joke, and that's already here. There's already a gradient of that happening. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I gotta check myself. Like, it's so easy to fall into that pattern of algorithmic thinking where, you know, it's like, well, that's just another cult, bro. Like, oh, you had a comment that I might disagree with? That's because you're in the, the whatever cult, and, um, and that is a danger. But, again, like the things that you're talking about, the way in which the internet creates this uh, you know, it's a simulation of collective consciousness in one way, but in another way, like, it really is sort of pushing people to occur to themselves as part of a collective consciousness. Uh, you got guys out there like like Jack from, from Twitter and even Elon from X, you know, you get the full sort of CEO spectrum, and these guys are really, like, out there saying, like, we need to expand the light of consciousness in the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
Sounds, sounds cool, bro, but like, what is that? Really? Yeah, You exactly. know, is consciousness inherently good? Is it, is it really analogous to light? I mean, you know, when I log on and I look at my phone and I see what's coming out through, what, what message is coming out of the medium of this light that's beaming, mm -hmm. blue light coming out of my phone, mm -hmm. uh, it's not like, you know, it's not like, uh, uh, um, uh, like Bertrand Russell talking about mathematics is the highest. You just like bask in the austere glow of the beauty of pure formal mathematics. That's not the experience. It's like, it's like schizo hmm. monsters flying into your soul. Like hmm. that's the light of consciousness. Um, so, but, <laughs> and yet there's, you know, there's this deep seated desire for to say like, well, it's, it's not really God. And it's, no, it's not really Jesus. Those things are too parochial. I, I want it to be everything, but like a good everything, but like a, you know, a transcendent of all things, uh, this kind of pantheistic, but even that, you know, they want to sort of get rid of, get rid of God talk and talk about consciousness. Um, it's hard to resist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you yourself, you know, you've remarked about this. Uh, you went on summer break from your own sort of like, you know, you're, you're doing this Urbit thing, uh, Other Life, and you were like one of the first big, uh, really evangelists for Urbit. And, and for those who don't know, maybe we could talk a little bit about what that's all about. Uh, but you detoxed, you spent like most of the summer just like straight up stepping away, like people who, who are paying you to, to lead them into a healthy online life. They're like, is he dead? Did he give up? Like what happened? What happened? Oh, nothing happened just walking the straight and narrow. <laughs> there is this very strange tendency that people have to, yeah, equate presence on the internet with, with life. It's just like, it's the same thing we were just talking about before. It's like, if you're not showing up to some online water cooler, you're dead. <laughs> it's so crazy, right? Um, I do think that the, the greatest alpha to be had today, meaning, sort of unexploited uh, power or leverage or value that most people are not seeing and are not accessing is offline. It's not just the kind of humanistic sentimental thing like, oh, to you know, reconnect with my soul or whatever, although that's probably good too. It's, it's actually a very hard-nosed uh, political claim here. It's like, where do actually good ideas come from? Where do real projects get formed? Where does real resolve come from? Where does real enthusiasm to, to work hard on meaningful things come from? Where does all of that come from? It comes from reflection. It comes from quiet. It comes from a certain uh, harnessing of resources, a kind of pregnancy, um, one could say. And when you're online all day, you're just starving yourself of, of, of all pregnancy. Nothing is swelling inside of you. Nothing, you give nothing the, the negative space to allow it to, to bloom, to swell. And so uh, I, I'm almost laughing at your, your question is funny to me because I never even thought of it. I never even noticed this as a question. I, I mean, I, I, I wasn't, I've never once thought that this was interesting or uh, notable, honestly. Um, but yeah, well, you're, there, you're, there are just so few, uh, so few guys out there who are, you know, you go back to the, to the bell curve and it's like on one end you have guys who are like, chip me daddy, upload me to the cloud, you know, like HR Geiger was right, and, and that's good, mm -hmm. like plug every orifice with, you know, with some dongle so that I can have all of the information at yeah. once, 24-7 uh, on online. 
And then at the other end, you have like, no, like Uncle Ted was right, live in the forest, right. mail the pipe bombs to David Glinter, you know, like Heidegger, cabin, hut, no yeah. electricity. And I look at these guys and I'm like, I understand why people are responding to these different pressures in right. these ways. But there is, you know, this vast territory in between. And I think, you know, what you are up to, whether people agree with it or disagree with it, like you are someone who was sort of like standard pre-digital academic track and then you abandoned that for reasons that probably a lot of people understand today where it's like academia certainly ain't what it used to be and, and higher education has become corrupted in all these various ways and you turned to the internet as a way to build something else and uh, and you have been doing that uh, you've you've figured out and you talk about this with your little you know book on how you you sort of figured out how to do this you uh, figured out how to make money off the internet. Uh, you know, six figures without having to have an OnlyFans, you know, like you've managed to kind of carve a path. And I think so many Americans, especially younger people who are like, I do not want to work at Chipotle. I do not want to work on Wall Street. I do not want to work for, for the Borg, however you define that. Um, but at the same time, they, it seems ridiculous to them to, to just, and I'm not going to work on the internet either. I'm going to do nothing. They, it's a dilemma. It's a predicament. Mm -hmm. And there really aren't that many guides out there who are just old enough that they have some seniority and they can play some mentorship role, but they're young enough where they actually know like WTF is going on in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And like, you're one of those guys. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what, like watching you kind of navigate that. Um, I find it to be impressive. I think others do too. And I want to give you an opportunity to just sort of like lay out uh, without, you know, negotiating against yourself and, and taking away your ability to sell those books, right? Mm -hmm. um, just lay out for people, uh, whether they're relatively younger or older, because I think everyone's kind of getting, just converging on this predicament. Um, how did you kind of find a way to reach that equilibrium or to reach that, that harmony um, that feels sustainable, that is profitable, and that isn't turning you into Ted Kaczynski or, I don't know, Sam Altman? Yeah, it's an interesting question and it's a thoughtful one, so thank you for it. Without trying to force this back into kind of continuity with the previous themes we've talked about, it, it really does come down to this, this idea of parisia, this idea of frank speech you say what you think is true at all times, and then you just figure out how to, how to survive it. That, that's all I've ever done. It's not sophisticated, and it's, not, it's actually really simple. Um, that's all I've ever done. And so that led to, you know, I, I had a successful academic career, and I just, it was nothing profound, no big protest or anything like that. It was just, I gradually found that what I was thinking, what I was saying, what seemed true to me was taking me off of that path. And I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I knew that, all, I, all I've ever tried to have is a strong personal sense of what I think is true. And I try to pay attention to that. And then I try to always say it a little bit more than I feel comfortable with. And then you just have to f create structures to, to, make, it, to make it work. Um, so that, that is like my entire framework personally that, that, I've, that I've pursued. And, you know, I'm not, I don't make a ton of money and I'm not that famous on the internet at, at all. I'm, I'm like small stakes. But to me that, but I am paying all the bills essentially living the life of a professor, more or less. I, I, I read, I write, and I teach, and I've built a business model around that. It's not, it's not massively successful, but it's enough to pay all the bills and it's enough for me to do it full time. I work incredibly hard, but I'm uh, basically a kind of digital yeoman farmer. I'm not, like, I'm not like scaling some sexy startup with VC backing or anything like that. And, and I'm, like I said, I'm not super famous or, or super rich by any means at all. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I'm just working really hard to, to keep growing and stay afloat. Um, and 
that is a possible. It's more possible than people realize. But again, it, it goes back to what we were saying before. People think that um, they either have to be this like YouTube superstar who has a million, who has like you know a strategy to get to a million followers within a year. And that's what success looks like. And so if you can be successful, then you can do that. And that's an option. Um, but if you can't do that, then you're not allowed to use those tools to, to carve out a life for yourself. And I guess if I represent anything that I would share with your audience and what, that I do generally share with people is that there is this completely other way of living life, which is to always just try to figure out what you think is true, to say it with reckless abandon, let the chips fall where they may. And then the next morning you wake up early and you figure out, okay, how can I use my intelligence and creativity to cobble together some kind of structure that will create value in the world and will pay me enough, enough to keep going? That, that has always been the way of the uh, kind of Christian American entrepreneur. And it works. It actually really works. Maybe you have to work really hard for a long time and maybe you're not going to you know, be in a legible niche that other people recognize as sexy and impressive. But you keep doing that long enough, you're going to work things out. And, 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 and eventually... You know, you'll you'll probably find some some asymmetric opportunity, uh, as I as I'm still looking for, and as I, I suspect I'll eventually find. But um, yeah, if I if I'm interesting at all, it's not because I'm a mega successful example of anything. It's it's because I'm actually uh, a simpleton who has simply figured out how to make it work just through cobbling these things together um, in in a way that seems to work by um, you know my own my own wits, I guess. And uh, it really does come down to. The reason I'm not, uh, I'm not really embedded in the culture war. I'm not really like seen as on the right or on the left. Um, I'm really kind of floating in outer space. Um, and and the, the, the only reason I've been able to kind of occupy that space successfully is because I really just don't ever try to use my words as, as, as weapons. I'm, I'm never trying to like win a game over people or like, uh, or at least to my best of my ability. Of course, we probably all fall into different temptations. So I'm not saying I'm perfect, but that is... Um, essentially the, the entire logic of, of my operation. Floating in outer space or maybe grounded in inner space. Uh, just the radical idea that maybe, just maybe, we can actually remain human beings while using the internet. Uh, you know, I, I, I go after the cyborgs, you know, and so a lot of times I get this reaction of like, well, aren't we cyborgs now, James? And it's like, well, you know, t sometimes. Mm. Sometimes, but how about not all the time? And, you know, <laughs> yes, it, it is going to take some spiritual discipline and it is going to take some, like, learning how to be honest with yourself and to not bullshit yourself in order to understand, like, how to make sure that you don't get sucked into all these things that all these other people are getting sucked into. Uh, we got a few minutes remaining. Um, you can, If you could warn people, if you say, like, whatever you do on the Internet, stay away from this or stay away from these people like what is the big temptation that you think the people get the most value out of resisting on the internet the worst temptation with the internet is simply being on it too much because the the, the key to using the internet effectively is to do valuable things off the internet and so that's the, i think the biggest trap is that you think oh you want to do something on the internet you want to make build an audience or build a business or whatever uh the biggest most common trap is that you just get addicted to typing things in the internet, which is never going to distinguish you or never going to create any kind of value. So it's like, you know, uh, life itself is a much more exciting video game. So if you go off the internet and treat it as a video game and you try to just challenge yourself to say things that most people wouldn't be willing to say to create waves in your own life, uh, just simply doing nothing other than trying to figure out what is true and trying to express it in this kind of uh, provocative, parisiastic way, everything else 
will kind of tell you what to do with it from there. Then you, you take the fallout of that. You take the byproducts of, of Parisia, the fallout of Parisia. And that is the only viable way to take a kind of good, straight and narrow lifestyle and get content out of it, is as, as the exhaust of a Parisiastic lifestyle. <laughs> content that makes you content. I love it. That is just about all the time we have today. Thank you, Justin Murphy, at least until next time around. You get this to support our show and get more content just like this. Even more content. It never ends. Go to blazetv.com and use code 0hour20. That's Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis. And may God have mercy on us all.